1: your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at ChoiceHotels.com, where travels come true.
2: The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into Scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Great Phoebe Wilson. And we're finally going to hit on a topic that has been requested by a lot of people. A lot, a lot of people. Uh, including Alexis and Sigrid and many others. Too many to list and count. Tracy, do you knit? Well,
0: the, the I mean, the short answer is yes. But I don't knit anything fancy. I basically knit things that can be constructed from rectangles.
1: I don't fare. That counts.
0: Well, yeah, like I know, I know folks who are really, really into knitting and they know all kinds of fancy stitches and they know how to knit cables and they know how to do all this other stuff. I know how to knit and purl and add one and make one and cast on and bind off. And I can make lots of scarves and shawls and the occasional hat. Uh, but like I don't make anything fancy.
1: We're, we're on similar levels at that point. Like I, I, um, know how to knit the basics it's not for me like in the creative realm the yarn arts are not my thing I'm really Mm -hmm. more of a dressmaker at heart part of it is that because probably because I have not practiced knitting I always feel like in the time it takes me to make a scarf I can make six or seven dresses So, so, so it's hard for me to get really married to the idea of knitting but lots of people knit and some people do absolutely beautiful things knitting, Uh, and because of its functionality in providing needed clothing and covering and accessories for humans, knitting has been around for quite a long time. Exactly how long is not entirely clear, but we do know a decent amount about how it has kind of traveled with us humans through time. Once it came about and our colleagues at stuff, mom never told you did a knitting episode in January of this year. Uh, and as you might expect, their focus is uh, some history and then a lot on how knitting has been commonly associated with one sex or the other throughout history. And they also talk a lot in that episode about how the invention of mechanized knitting machines really shifted things and how, gender roles were affected by that invention. Uh, so for us, we're going to focus more on the earlier years of knitting and similar techniques to knitting and sort of their place in history. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the vast variety of knit work that developed in just one small part of the world, just to kind of give you a sense of of how things can kind of blossom in different locations. So if you want to know more about mechanized knitting and even some fun spy-related knitting tales, you should check out Kristen and Caroline's knitting episode. But we're going to focus, like I said, more on the history of particularly the early part of knitting.
0: The first known use of the word knit as a noun, as in this fabric is a knit, was in the late 1500s. But the word's roots as a verb go back a lot farther the first known use as a verb was prior to the 12th century, and it's possibly derived from the Middle English knitten, which uh, descends from the Old English word knitten, which is spelled with a C. The root of that word is the Old English word for not, which is knata. And it also may be linked to the Dutch word uh, I Now that I have access to the Oxford English Dictionary, I love to look things up. In the Oxford English Dictionary. And the first thing <laughs> I did was plunk knit in there. Uh, and I found the most delightful thing, which is actually from an English, uh, a, a, like a, a French book for English speakers. Um, and in, in its descriptions of how to say things about knitting was the sentence, I knit bonnets or hosen from, <laughs> it's from 1530. And knit is spelled K N Y T. And I just like hosen hosen in general.
1: (laughs) One of the problems with tracing the history of knitting is that there were similar techniques in use throughout history that have caused some artifacts to be misidentified. So to someone who knits or knows about knitting, the difference would be fairly apparent. But to researchers that maybe aren't textile specialists, it's really easy to attribute a creation technique of an object to knitting when it might not be. And there are even cases where experts have been fooled.
0: Additionally, a lot of the ancient knitting examples are, of course, made out of natural fibers, and a lot of them have decomposed over time. So we have very, very few actual samples to study. Uh, Most of the work looking at knitting's origins has been pieced together from cultural cues rather than actual samples of knit items.
1: And to complicate matters even further, in the early history of knitting, there was not standardized vocabulary for it. So even in texts where it seems like knitting is being referenced, it may not be what we think of as knitting today. And vice versa. There are instances where some form of needlework or fiber arts is mentioned, and it could be knitting, but we really don't have a way to know for certain.
0: Because knitting and its spread are closely linked to trade routes, we also don't know with certainty that the few historic samples that we have of knitting, uh, that have you know that we've discovered, are even from the place that they were found. They could have been made somewhere else, then carried along a trade route. In terms of the earliest knitting artifacts so far, they also all exist on their own. There aren't additional contemporary samples to look at to contextualize them. So, for example, we've never found a cache of knitted items. All together in one space, which I don't, in my imagination, that means that there was like no, no 12th century cat lady who knitted a million, (laughs) a million pairs of mittens and little cat booties.
1: Uh, it appears, no, it's always like one sock, one fragment, one, you know, there's not, there's not a lot. So keep all of that in mind as we're talking about knitting's history and origins. A lot of this, um, is based on some some kind of moving parts as we try to figure out more and more about it. And before we dig into finding knitting's genesis, let's first talk a little bit more in detail about the various techniques for turning yarn or thread into textiles, how the ones that aren't knitting differ from knitting, and kind of where they all fit into the bigger picture.
0: Of course, we'll start with knitting. Knitting uh, manipulates yarn or thread to create a textile by using two needles. That's important. To create loops within loops. And that results in a textile that has some elasticity. So for our listeners who might not be familiar with knitting needles, they're long, smooth, relatively thin metal or wood or plastic sticks. Their sticks are pointed at one end, and a lot of times they have a blunt stopper on the other end. There are variations on this basic idea for specialty knitting, but that's the basic style. To knit in the round, needles that have two pointed ends are used, and the work can be passed around them in circles to create tubular knits like stockings, some hat patterns use knitting in the round. That'll become pretty important to the expansion of knitting as a trade.
1: Yeah, stockings in particular are a big driver. And as a person knits, they're looping one continuous piece of fiber over and over. So you'll see, I mean, you've seen pictures likely with someone knitting and they have a, a, a large skein or a large ball of yarn that they're pulling from. So it's it's not like little piece after little piece. It's usually one big thing, and then if they get to the end, they knot it so that it continues to the next ball of yarn or skein. And the stretchiness of a knitted item varies based on the size of the needles used, the thickness and the weight of the fiber being knitted and the tension of the knitter. That's how tightly or loosely he or she tends to pull the fiber. And one thing that I left out of the notes that I should mention when Tracy was talking about the different items that uh, knitting needles can be made out of, they have been made out of many other things in history like bone, for sure. just basic sticks. But like if you were to go Buy knitting needles today, you're looking at metal, wood, or plastic. Yeah. I can't think of any alternates
0: to maybe, maybe bamboo, which is technically wood.
1: Yeah. I, bamboo I, I is technically wood.
0: grass, really, but people would, <laughs> <laughs> would pile it under wood. Um, yeah, and you can get like double pointed needles that are, that you would use to make little tubular things and like ones in the round that are connected with a piece of flexible tube stuff like there's a lot of different things you can find yeah yeah those are the big ones i i personally tend to be a very tight knitter (laughs) when i knit things they come out smaller than you would expect
1: i used to be and i've loosened up over the years
0: yeah so nalbending looks very very similar to knitting And it has, in fact, been falsely identified as knitting before. But unlike knitting, which, as we said, uses two needles, knobbending uses just one needle with an eye that the fiber is threaded through. Also, unlike knitting, the end of the fiber is drawn all the way through each loop. So it's worked in cut pieces rather than as one long, continuous piece. So it doesn't create this loop within a loop within a loop chain that knitting does. A fragment of fiber textile from the ruins of ancient town Dura-Europos, which is in present-day eastern Syria, was long identified as possibly the earliest example of knitting, and it was from around 250 to 420, somewhere in that window. But nope, that was Nalbending, which dates back to 1400 BCE based on artifacts found at Danish sites. Um, sometimes if you look at YouTube videos about Nalbending, they call it like Viking knitting.
1: Yes. Uh, and it, it's very fascinating to watch. It's, um you know, there are still people doing it today. That's kind of one of the things that I love about all of these. There are things that that go on and on and on. They haven't died out. Uh Predating, even bending is a textile creation technique called sprang. Uh, sprang has been dated back as far as 1500 to 1100 BCE. And while it also can look very similar to knitting, it actually requires a loom. It's not something that can be done portable on a couple of needles. Uh, the thread used for sprang is uh, stretched to a high tension and secured at both ends during weaving. So you kind of create a grid of that. And then when the tension is released after after all the we- the the weaving is done, it kind of pops into a smaller shape, and then you have a stretchy net-like textile as a result.
0: Just for the sake of yarn art's inclusivity, we're also going to mention crochet. So we know that crochet came along a lot later in the 18th century, that it was an evolution of an embroidery technique that was called tambouring. So crochet, which is worked with a single hook instead of needles, arose from the stitches being worked separately away from the backing cloth. And it doesn't usually get confused with knitting when we're looking at historical pieces.
1: Yeah, I don't think I've ever stumbled across any that are like, this is knitting. I mean, certainly laymen will do that in day-to-day modern life where they'll go, oh, "Oh, so-and-so knit me this scarf. It's like, no, that's crochet. But uh, (laughs) in terms of historical artifacts, we don't usually run into that problem. And knitting start, though, like so many other things. Uh, likely came from the cradle of civilization, with some estimates placing its development around the 8th or ninth century. And it's possible that knitting is a direct descendant of knotwork fishing nets used by sailors from Arabic countries during that time. But the first known examples of knitting are from Egypt, and they're from around 1000 to 1400. These are blue and white cotton socks with an intricate pattern that indicates that they're almost definitely not the first knitted thing, they're kind of too advanced. They're simply the oldest knitted thing that we have left. If
0: you've ever knit something for the first time, it would not look like this box. (laughs) (laughs) From Egypt and Islamic countries around the Mediterranean, knitting spread to Europe, and then it spread out throughout that continent.
1: And then from trade, it kind of went globally from there. And knitting's rapid spread, when you think about it, makes a lot of sense. Compared to other textile creation options, it was fast and relatively cheap. And I'm sure any modern knitters listening may have laughed at that one because good yarn can get really expensive in a hurry. Knitting a sweater is very rarely going to save you any money and in many cases will cost you a great deal more than purchasing one at a store but you will have a custom work of art at the end. Uh, there was also no need for a loom with knitting, and it was relatively easy to learn. It was also portable. You just needed two thin, stiff items to act as needle, and to act as needles and then a thread or the thread or the yarn that you were going to use. And the variety of items that could be created with knitting was incredibly diverse. So by varying the weight and thread or yarn used or the size of the needles and the stitches, everything from heavyweight knits that were like protective items to delicate laces could be created using the basic same handheld technology.
0: Another cool thing about knitting that I think is less true, at least in my experience of a lot of other textiles that you might make, for utility purposes, is that you can learn pretty easily to knit in the dark. Like, the oh, that's the, true. The woman who taught me to knit grew up in Germany during World War II, and they had a lot of times when they would have to be in blackout conditions. Um, and so they, they all lo- knew how to knit by feel, which it's a, a lot easier, I think, to knit by feel, especially if you're knitting something pretty simple, than to sew a garment by feel or to embroider <laughs> by feel. That's just my guess. <laughs> I kind of want to do an art project where I make things in the dark and see what they look like. (laughs) (laughs) So the first known examples of knitting in Europe are pillow covers made of silk fiber, and they were found in Spain, and they're dated circa 1275. In addition to the pillow covers, which were found in a prince's tomb, most of the knitting examples from Spain were around the same time were pretty ornate, uh, and a lot of them were liturgical items that were for use in the Catholic Church.
1: And coming up, we're going to be- talk about an alternate, though unsubstantiated, origin point for knitting. Uh, but first, we're going to pause
0: for a word from one of our sponsors. <laughs> And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
4: I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step.
5: Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all.
6: Culture, and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the MyCotura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So we mentioned before the break that there is an alternate story of where knitting came from. There are actually several, but these are the kind of big ones. Uh, this is an apocryphal story about the origin of knitting that kind of slots it before any of these known examples that we've talked about. And this tale claims that St. Fiacre, who is an Irish abbot, invented knitting and then passed it on to France and that it spread from there. So this kind of is the exact opposite direction of spread that we actually have uh, archaeological evidence of. And this would shift dates really significantly, though, as uh, St. Fiacre died in the year 670. There's no real evidence to back the claim that he invented knitting, although he is claimed by some as the patron saint of knitting. And there does not appear to be an official patron saint of knitters that I could find, but there are several that are claimed by various different ideologies and groups. So in addition to St. Fiacra, St. Lucy, St. Ursula, St. Sebastian, and St. Rebecca have all been claimed by knitters at some point in time, but none of these stories really holds the key to the history of knitting and the technique.
0: Outside of Spain, the majority of knitted items in Europe between the late 13th century, right up to the early 15th century, were not perhaps what you might think of when you imagine knitting today. They weren't sweat sweaters or scarves or other weighty garments. But they were the sort of fine work that had been found in that prince's tomb from earlier. They were accessory items. They were delicate and fine and items that had to do more with adornment and decoration than utility. By late 14th century, knitting had definitely made its way to Germany and Italy. And we know that because the Virgin Mary is actually depicted in art from this time period, knitting. Yeah.
1: Uh, and you know that wonderful feeling when you change clothes from a fitted garment made from a woven fabric, i.e. one that has no stretch, to a comfy knit that's got some give? Well, so did Europe during the 15th and 16th centuries, because this is when knitted stockings became very, very popular as trade exploded and more and more people had access to knit wares and learned to knit. According to an article in an 1832 printing of the Ladies' Penny Gazette, uh, there's a story that says that once Queen Elizabeth was given a pair of black knitted stockings from her silk woman, allegedly in the third year of her reign, she then refused to go back to woven cloth stockings.
0: One of the Oxford English Dictionary's examples of the word knit was about Queen Elizabeth's clothes. Yes, she became a big
1: fan once she was like, wait, fabric can stretch, excuse me. (laughs) She was all
0: in. Their popularity became so great that knitting basically became huge business at this time. This is when knitting guilds in Europe really surged in popularity. And while there is mention of what may have been some sort of knitting guild in France as early as 1268, uh, this really had to do with milliners of gloves and hats. We don't really have additional confirmation of this until 1366. That's when actual documents are there. It's entirely possible that they were more like standard atelier for accessories and then adopted knitting as the art's popularity rose and demand for knitted items skyrocketed. And by the
1: 1400s, we know that there were knitting guilds in the Netherlands and Italy. And by the early 1500s, the knitting guild was one of the most important guilds in Paris. And there were guilds spread throughout Europe. By the mid 16th century, knitting was a prominent trade throughout the continent. Knitting in Russia became so commonplace that by the 1640s, knitted stockings were considered a standard part of military gear.
0: The point of a guild was to maintain and improve quality in the craft, to teach new tradesmen, and to help market the goods of its members. To join the guild as a master knitter, a tradesman, and this was an all-male profession at the time, would have to devote six years of his life to study, three as an apprentice, and three traveling to learn new techniques. After the six-year training period, a guild candidate would have approximately three months to produce a prescribed assortment of knitted items ranging from delicate gloves to a full knitted carpet, and then these would be reviewed for quality. If the work was worthy, the applicant would then be granted guild membership.
1: And up to this point, for the most part, it appears that there was really just one primary knitting stitch in use. So the basic one that you would start with if you learned today, like Tracy and I talked about, we can knit and we can purl. That means that if you're doing that with the right side showing, it's smooth stitches that are created by the loops. And the back side, which is considered the pearl side, shows those stitches as bumps. There's a little more texture. And up to this point, any variation in the design of a knitted item was created by changing the yarn color. But in the mid-16th century, uh, somewhere right in there, we see textured knitting beginning, where some of the stitches are knitted, in effect, backward, so that the bumps, those pearl stitches, appear on the otherwise smooth right side to create patterns and designs
0: would also mean that you could change the stitch at the end so your stuff wouldn't curl up at the bottom. Yeah. is what irritates me about that stitch today. (laughs) I think we call stockinette. Maybe that's why. Of course, once this started, it never stopped. People are still manipulating stitches to create new textured designs all the time. The latter half of the 1500s is also the time period where people figured out how to skip stitches to leave empty spaces and knit work as part of the design, creating little eyelets, And then progressively to more intricate laces. And this is where my knitting knowledge stopped. Because I had (laughs) this this beautiful pattern that involved doing exactly this thing to make a, a lacy looking shawl. And because, as I said earlier, I am a very tight knitter. I realized about three quarters of the way through that I was making a doll shawl and not a human shawl. Because I had been knitting the whole thing way too tightly.
1: Yeah, I it, it's interesting to me. I had not thought of eyelet fabrics sort of being I hadn't thought of it in that way, but that's they were creating eyelets. Um it just kinda of fascinates me. Uh so when the stocking frame knitting machine was invented in fifteen eighty nine, so this is not long after people really started to to play with design style and knitting, it was the first step in a dramatic shift for knitting. Knitting by hand did not vanish at this point. That came a bit later, and it never vanished. But uh, this didn't cause its immediate uh, drop-off, and we'll talk about why in a moment. But the inventor of the stocking frame was an English gentleman by the name of William Lee. And there is a rather fanciful story that claims that Lee invented his knitting frame because the woman he was enamored with was always very preoccupied with her knitting and thus had no time or attention for him.
0: So he decided he would free up her time by inventing a contraption that would take all the work out of her hands, and he spent the next three years working on it. Doesn't seem like he ever did win the love of his muse, though, but it did change his career path from ministry to industry as he turned his stocking production into his full-time job. Once again, we
1: will go back to Queen Elizabeth I, because uh, it was known that she was fond of stockings. There's a reason that, that a reference to her came up when Tracy looked up knit in the Oxford English Dictionary. Lee went to her and presented his invention and petitioned for a patent, but the monarch refused to issue him one. She was very fearful that this invention was going to put too many people out of work.
0: We talk about that in our episode about the Luddites, which also relates to knitting, now that I think about it. <laughs> knitting is everywhere. It is everywhere. So, uh, Francis King Henry IV, however, was completely happy to form a partnership with Lee and his brother, and so the siblings moved to Paris to produce frames and train knitters there to use them. It seemed like a really good setup. But five years later, in 1610, King Henry IV was assassinated, and Lee's agreement with the monarchy was no longer valid. When the inventor tried to pursue the matter with France's legal system, he met with obstacle after obstacle, and then he died in 1614.
1: And that sounds very sad, but there's actually something of a happy ending to this tale. Uh, William Lee's brother then went back to England, and when he did, he smuggled some of their remaining knitting frames with him. And uh, allegedly, some of the, the people that had been trained to use them went as well. He set up a production partnership, which would eventually become the Worshipful Company of Framework Knitters, which started as a guild with a royal charter in 1663. It existed before that, but that's when it became a a royal charter. And this actually still exists today as a livery company with numerous charitable projects, as well as education and outreach.
0: Once the Industrial Revolution arrived, knitting became even more mechanized, and hand-knitting was no longer needed to keep up with supply demands. There continued to be people who did hand-knit items for sale, but it became a much smaller cottage industry. And hand-knitting was also freed up to be a hobby instead of the way you made your living. If you want to learn more about the whole economic ramifications of all that, uh, that's our previously mentioned episode about the Luddites. (laughs)
1: Yeah, uh, like I said, Kristen and Caroline really talk a lot about kind of what happens after industrialization and and how it changed things. So uh, next we are going to talk about some of the specific design styles of knitting in various locations. But before we do, let's take a quick break. And have a
0: word from a fabulous sponsor. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
4: I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step.
3: Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: As knitting spread throughout the world, different areas became known for specific styles or designs of knitting. Austria and Germany became known for heavily cabled designs and the traditional knitting style found in Turkey, Kazakhstan and Afghanistan features chain stitch embroidery and really fine patterns. And those have been passed down through centuries and South America developed uniquely shaped accessories, those fantastic pointed caps that we still see made today uh, and chunky textiles that are made with thick wool fibers.
0: We're going to focus a little on the notable styles that have developed through the British Isles and Ireland, because for such a relatively small area, there's just a lot of variety and a lot of specificity to each region's individual knitting styles.
1: Uh, so Fair Isle Knits, that's probably a phrase that you have heard before. Whether you knit or not, if you have just shopped, you have probably seen something advertised this way. That name has been leveraged by clothing companies for years in advertising to convey quality. And Fair Isle is a relatively remote island to the north of Scotland, and it's become known for a knitting style that really echoes Scandinavian designs. The modern version of a Fair Isle sweater, which really hit its developmental stride in the 19-teens, features horizontal stripes of repeating designs, worked in multiple colors.
0: Fair Isle is near to the islands that make up Shetland, and it's a region known for its wool. That wool, which is multicolored both because of the wide range of sheep colors and because some are dyed with natural colorants such as lichen and matter, has been a key component in Fair Isle knitting since the 1800s. In the modern era, some synthetic dyes have been used in Fair Isle knitting, but it's really at a minimum with natural dyes still holding a lot of favor
1: during the 1920s in particular, Fair Isle knits were incredibly popular with the fashion set, particularly in more muted colorways. If you look at fashion plates, particularly for gentlemen of the 1920s, you will see exactly what we're talking about with the Fair Isle sweater, particularly like with a golfing outfit that like really unique, beautiful banded design repeats.
0: The Channel Islands off the French West Coast have a knitting tradition that dates back to the late Tudor era. And this region made very fine stockings favored by the likes of Mary Queen of Scots. And the location close to the European continent made it a natural place for exporting knitting to other countries.
1: Because the islands became somewhat isolated as revolutions and wars kept neighboring countries busy... Uh, the export business lagged, but the knitting continued and the drop off and in influence from trading countries actually cemented the style of sweater that's considered the Channel Islands signature. It's a very squared off boxy shape with knotted edges. It's sort of a decorative knotting along the edges uh that's, they're kind of finishing. And there's also normally a slit on either side of a sweater. And I, as I say sweater over and over, I, I feel compelled to mention that in some countries they call it a jumper. Yep. I'm referring specifically to like a pullover sweater, even though sweater also gets used to reference things like cardigans and whatnot, at least in the U.S. But a pullover setter, sweater or what some people would call a jumper. So uh that slit that I was mentioning is normally on either side of the bottom edge, like at the hip of these sweaters for range of movement. And these were particularly in dark colors, very popular with fishermen for
0: decades. North of the Scottish mainland, as we uh, alluded to earlier, are the Shetland Islands. and. One of the hallmarks of the Shetland knitting tradition is its variety. Goods ranging from rugged blankets and socks all the way to the most delicate lace have all been refined to perfection there. And as
1: early as the beginning of the 1700s, there was trade between the Shetland Islands and merchants from Germany and the Netherlands. But it wasn't really until the 1840s that lace started to be an export focus. Up to that point, all of that trade was more in like the the heavier goods. And one of the really lovely characteristics of the fine laces of Shetland is that they're knitted on the bias. So they start with a single stitch, which forms the corner rather than casting on a row of stitches and knitting a square, like Tracy said at the top of the show. She can knit things that are made from rectangles. Uh, usually that involves casting on, you know, X number of stitches and then you knit all your rows. But this casts on one stitch and then expands slowly in this beautiful bias knit. Uh, A lace scarf or a shawl from Shetland during its lace heyday was considered so fine and light that you could pass an entire full-size piece through a wedding ring easily. This was part of like how they would show the quality to merchants. And as the uh, chunkier Fair Isle knitwork became vogue in the 1920s, as we mentioned, it became kind of part of the fashionable set. Shetland kind of followed that trend and moved a little bit away from lace and into heavier wool garments.
0: I think that thing that I abandoned... That was turning into a doll shawl started with one stitch. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's hard. It's I don't, hard. I, my grandmother used to knit on the bias and I would just sit there agog. Like I couldn't really grasp how she kept the tension right. And, mm-hmm. and again, it's years and years of experience. Uh, But, whew, I could not do it. And
0: the pattern will tell you to begin by knitting a gauge swatch to make sure that what you (laughs) knit turns out the correct size. And I lazily have never done that, which hasn't really mattered when I've been making scarves. Right. But it mattered a lot when trying to make that shawl. The story of knitting in the Aran Islands in Galway Bay off Ireland's west coast is tied to a previous podcast topic, The Irish Potato Famine. In 1891, the Congested Districts Board was formed to address the issue of poverty, and the plan was to train people to knit exportable goods. This became a local industry, and it grew to the point that the government agency's training program led to more and more intricate designs. The hallmark of these styles that were developed during this time was the use of thick wool yarn that was left in its natural color.
1: And the last of the regions of Great Britain and Ireland that we're going to talk about today is the Yorkshire Dales. And this rural region is unique in that industrialization really did not impact it to the degree that it did other areas in terms of knitting. It remained a farming area, as it always had, with knitting as sort of a secondary industry. And one of the most interesting characteristics that I just fell in love when I read this of the knitting style associated with Yorkshire Dales isn't a pattern or a type of wool, but the actual physical way that knitting continued there for many decades. Knitting was not, as it is for many people, a sit-down activity, but it was something literally done on the go while walking about with the yarn secured in a pouch or basket at the waist. I love this so much. Mm
0: -hmm. Knitting also developed as a social activity in the communities of the region with large group gatherings and parties for all ages that focused on the same things. It would happen at any gathering, plus knitting, so kind of like a quilting bee or a candle making, but with knitting.
1: Yeah, but you would be doing those, the knitting while you stood there and chatted or, you know, perhaps even danced a little bit. I'm just, I'm really wowed and delighted by the idea of knitting while you do other things, while you perambulate about, uh, we also have a little bit of late breaking news because we mentioned briefly South America, um, which presumably, Either got knitting through trade or they were developing their own yarn arts, but there was a really interesting discovery very, very recently in January of 2016, so just a few months ago. And at a 4,000 year old dig site in Lima, Peru, uh, their researchers there turned up what were described as knitting implements in a woman's tomb. And whether or not these were actually knitting implements or tools for some other fiber art isn't clear to us just yet. I have only seen them listed as knitting implements. But if they are knitting implements, this really changes the narrative of knitting's history significantly. Uh, if they can find evidence that this was actual knitting, that completely changes the timeline. So... These items were found with with numerous other artifacts that will no doubt all be studied. So hopefully we will eventually get some news about what all of that is. But uh, right now we don't know. So that could make all of this podcast completely incorrect in terms of its historical accuracy. Its timeline will still exist, but there will be things that predate all of it, which would be cool. And we can do an update at that point.
0: Do you have some listener mail? I do. And I almost feel guilty because we've
1: read several pieces of listener mail about this. But this has a neat uh, reference for people if they wanted to learn more. So I wanted to include it. It's about our uh, our uh episodes on various holiday characters and traditions. And it is from Nikki. And she is referencing specifically uh Bafana. And she says, there are many variations to this story. But the one thing that holds true is that all of the children get coal and Bafana always sweeps your house. Carbon dolce, which is sweet coal, is a candy similar to rock candy that's given to Italian children as a reminder that none of us are perfect and that we may have our bad moments. They're still sweet. Also, the Italian folklore behind her is that she is like a proper Italian woman. She keeps a clean home. Uh So she... Types LOL, and she says, so if you leave a broom out at night, she will also sweep your floors. Uh, she has definitely evolved over the years, making her far more sincere and approachable, and my children, third generation American, both celebrate Bafana's arrival every year. It's a great holiday, and for those with young children that want to take on one of our most beloved traditions, Tomi de Paula, who is a children's author, and that is spelled T-O-M-I-E, and then de Paula looks like one last name, D-E capital P-A-O-L-A, in case you want to look it up, is a children's author that has a great book that explains Bafana to kids. My son brings it into his class every year, so I don't get any calls from his school about the witch that visits our house. Uh, (laughs) Thank you, Nikki. That was awesome. Um, It's good to have something to refer people to, especially because some of those traditions are really fun, and I know people would love to kind of Explore and incorporate some of those possibly, uh, for their tiny historians in their homes. And that's a, yeah. I always like having a good reference for people. So thank you for that. Uh, if you would like to write to us about your knitting or your holiday traditions or anything else, you can do so at history podcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also at facebook.com slash mist history on Twitter at mist history. At pinterestcom slash History, at mistinhistory.tumblr.com. We're on Instagram at mistinhistory. Uh, if you would like to toy a little bit with what we've talked about today, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works. Type the word knitting into the search bar, and you'll get a quiz called the Ultimate Knitting Quiz. True confession: I haven't taken it, so I I don't know how hard it is, <laughs> and I don't know that I would pass it because while I know how to knit the basics, I'm not an ultimate knitter by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, you can also visit us at our home on the web, which is com, for an archive of every episode of the show ever of all time, as well as show notes for any of the ones since Tracy and I have been doing the show, as well as occasional blog posts. And we encourage you to come and visit us at MissedInHistory.com and HowStuffWorks.com.
3: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.